I don't know if you do, but I find a lot of people these days worried about how it's all going to work out or even if it's going to get beyond next year, you know. So, really, for me, it's just, if I've got some kind of opportunity to say, let's look after the kids, you know, and let's be, uh, let's, uh, in 60s terminology, let's vibe it and let's, let's, you know, let's do it right, instead of just really get it wrong and blow ourselves up, I find myself doing that, you know. Um, I don't really want to preach, but I just want to say that I think that kind of thing is a good idea. And I think most people do support it, strangely enough. First of all, people will accuse you of preaching. Mm. And secondly, that people, particularly in this country, oddly enough, will mm. be embarrassed by an honest statement like that. Mm. Does it worry you that they will say either of those two things? Well, I don't know. You know, I've, I don't really know if they will. Uh, you know, so we're, we're guessing. Oh, there's bound to be one out there. Um, no, what happens is you have to not let it worry you. In truth, you know, you are just a person, and anyone who slags off anything, um, you don't say, wow, isn't that great? Look at this. Here, love, look at this. He really hates me. Isn't this great? <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone like that. So you, you never really like it. Um, I'm a bit aware these days that I can be, you know, to some people, embarrassing. I suppose really my answer to them would be, well, just don't buy it. Don't listen to it. Turn it off whenever you hear it. It's simple as that, really. Uh, anybody else who likes it, I'm not going to stop it just because they don't like it. Because there's plenty of people who do like it. And I actually enjoy doing it. So rock on, Tommy. Welcome to Paul Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 guten tag und willkommen to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we're actually going to be doing a proper episode, folks. I, I cannot believe it either. We are going to be doing another album review today by continuing our playful playing of the particularly perky Pipes of Peace. For those of you who joined us on our last episode, you'll know that we covered everything from Paul's disastrous social life and media relations, the whole meeting with Michael Jackson and the songwriting issues that followed from that, as well as the recording of the album itself. Today, as usual, for a part two, we're going to finally get back into the music itself as we go through 1983's Pipes of Peace, song by song, track by track. And, yeah, this is an episode where I I get to do the right thing and champion Pipes of Peace for the stellar Paul McCartney album that it actually is. As you know, it's oh so much fun actually getting around to doing one of these proper album reviews. You know, we've been going for about three years now on this podcast. And in terms of main episodes, this is only episode 15, which is really mad when you think about it. But these episodes always take extra long to research, write and edit. And I'd rather these specific podcasts be as good as they can be, which I hope they are. So yeah, thanks for your patience is what I'm saying, I guess. As always, it's at this time of the show that I'd like to take a quick moment to take the time to thank you, the listener. You, the Patreon supporter. You, the Twitter follower, the Facebook liker, the emailer. Everyone who's ever interacted in the show in any capacity. You are the community that keeps this podcast alive. Maka knows that I'm grateful for the fact that anyone in this tiny, tiny blue speck in space listens to this show at all. And now here, all I can do, you know, with all of that is just say thank you. It's so overwhelming that you are all taking part in this and I cannot wait to carry on with you in the future. 
On the flip side of that, thanks though, is my need to plug all of the various housekeeping elements associated with this podcast. The most important part of the show that I kind of want to expand, as you can guess, is the show's Patreon. Patreon, as you probably know, is a platform that allows you, the content absorber, to help people like me, the content creator. And as you guys know, we've been able to fund some new content for the show, including my trip to Mark Lewison's Hornsey Road, to my viewing of the Bruce McMouse show. These were all paid for with funds from the Patreon. And if you would like to see me continue expanding the kind of content that we do on this show, then I guess I kind of need your help a little bit. You know, I want to do an episode where I want to review the entire Linda McCartney food range or book certain guests that may be a little more prestigious and throw them a few quid or just even buy new McCartney books and equipment to help make the show better than it already is. You know, the sky's the limits. If you like what I do with the show, which I do do for free whilst working a full-time job, and if you're the type of person who would ever want to like buy me a drink or a coffee or a scone or something, then just check out our Patreon page. You know, there are people out there donating between like $1 and $10 a month. I know that all of you are probably supporting other podcasts and you have your own money woes anyway, and this is awfully preachy. You've heard it all before, but I want the show to grow. I want it to do better. And if you want the show to do better, then please do not assume that everyone else is doing it because I've seen the download numbers, folks. They don't match. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to help keep the lights running, just check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. Check us out on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. That's the central hub for the show, the best way to keep up to date and see all the crazy little things I post there. For a more intimate experience, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Unfortunately, we don't have any emails to read out today, folks. Get on that. I love reading out your correspondence here on this show. Particularly, let me know your Paul McCartney story. Like, you know, have any strange anecdotes or bits of trivia or just a unique story that in some way involves you and Paul McCartney. No matter how tenuous the link, hit us up on our email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Check out the blog for extra content, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You can see extra articles and ideas for episodes on there. And finally, whatever app you're on, please leave us a five-star review, whether that's iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Podbean, Podomatic, whatever you are using. If you can take 10 seconds from your day to leave us a five-star review or maybe even a little comment, that really helps boost us in the ratings and the complicated algorithms. I'm not exactly sure how it works. But when has a five-star review ever meant something bad? And there we are. That brings us to the end of our housekeeping segment. Thank you, folks, for sitting through all of that. But yeah, not exactly the lengthiest intro for this week's episode. Um, Originally, some of you may know that I was actually going to be doing this with a guest. Originally I was going to be doing this episode with Ken Michaels, the man behind the things we said today, every little thing, and one of the hosts of Talk More Talk. You know, if you're listening to new media Beatle or solo Beatle content, you fucking know who Ken Michaels is. And when I had Ken on the show to talk about Pops of Peace, we didn't exactly get to the songs. Um, If you go back to uh, an episode titled A Chat with Ken Michaels, you will see what was originally meant to be this episode you are listening to now, whereas instead it devolved into a, a general Beatles chat. But since it's with Ken, I have no problem with that whatsoever, and it was great content. He's an absolute gen, and of course I would chat any Beatles with him any time. Obviously that did push back the recording of this episode a bit, and that's why there have been a couple of smaller placeholder episodes released in the weeks before this. But hey, we're here now. We're here to set the record straight with Pipes of Peace. 
and in a not-so-subtle way, pretty much tell you why my opinion's right and yours is wrong. Without any further ado, everyone, shall we just crack on with the songs? Yeah, go on. Pipes of Peace. If I didn't have to do it, I think I'd try and do it as a hobby. Just because I really do like doing it. Um, it actually seems strange to me why anyone would think I wouldn't like doing it. Yeah, but you also involve yourself with all the peripheral activities, like people like me coming down, doing television programs, mm. doing what they call promotion, mm. which is hard work, gets away from the real business, which is music, mm. and yet you're prepared to do it. Well, I could have you chucked out. point. <laughs> 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 no, I don't mind it, really. I mean, it's like, I, I suppose you, you know, you get, you get to like the whole flavour of the whole thing. And I never really hated doing interviews too much. And I suppose, you know, you, if you're in the... Uh, the thing of sort of trying to flog vinyl, to put it bluntly or crudely, you know, which is sort of what the whole thing's uh, roughly about. So we move on to our first song, and I knew going into this that I didn't want to open these reviews with an immediate reference to Tug of War, but hey, what are you going to do? Because just like Tug of War, the first of our tracks today is also the title song of the album. But trust me, the similarities do not end there, people. And if you haven't guessed, Already, it's time to play The Pipes of Peace. All around the world Little children being born to the world Got to give them all we can Till the war is won Then will the work be done Okay, I'm completely infatuated with Pipes of Peace. Like, even I am shocked at how much I like this track. Because on paper, this really should be some subpar dribble that shouldn't appeal to me at all. And yet, after having gone through this journey on this show and moving through Paul's discography the way we have, the moment I first heard this song, I knew instinctively that I was going to, quote, get this album. From time to time, Paul can tend to struggle with achieving true universality with his music and connecting with his audience. But with Pipes of Peace, he genuinely achieves it. And whilst I may not be able to lay my finger on the specific factors that make this song so universal, but its mixture of its message, its catchiness, and its simple charm stimulated that node in my brain that lets me know that it's pure McCartney time. I'm in no way surprised that this song was popular, as it was. There was a certain sales momentum from Tug of War, of course, but I thought I would be on my own in defending this song. But here in the UK, it was a fucking number one. And I absolutely love that, just like Mull of Kintyre, the UK is showing its better taste in McCartney music. The elephant in the room question with this song is, how do you rate Pipes of Peace as an opener compared with Tug of War? And I don't know about you, but this song for me actually escapes the moniker of just being the opening title track for a quasi-concept album. In that, I can just listen to this song as its own thing without the parent album, and it works all the same. Would I say the same thing about Tug of War in that similarly standalone way? 
I'm not so sure. I know they were both singles, but Tug of War to me always just felt much more tethered to its album. As an opening track, I cannot help but feel that this is far superior as a song to Tug of War in almost every conceivable way. I've already laid down my thesis statement on this album and how it, you know, tonally is more suited towards Paul McCartney. And whilst this song does indulge in every Macca convention in the book, it also has those few twists and turns that do keep you interested every time you listen to it. Whereas many mercurial songs from his songbook tend to feel a little all over the place, Pice of Peace balances all of these tones and shifts effortlessly, like he's being a true Macca master with this one. He really does throw a lot in the pot this one, we have the children's choirs, we have the verse with the tabla player absolutely going crazy. We have those synthy backing vocal harmonies at the end. The literal pipe solo that, you know, somehow goes into 80s computer sounds. Like, this is some Professor McCartney stuff here. And yet, all of that's going under the radar just because this is Pipes of Peace. It's a lot more ambitious than you may give it credit for. And I always love that about a song. I even think the first few seconds of this song are extremely fascinating when compared to its sister track, Tug of War. The former is McCartney kind of just blurting out Tug of War with that same old McCartney acoustic guitar sound. He just comes in with, it's a tug of war. And for me, that I was just not hooked in with that. I, I thought it was a bit jarring and I was a bit put off by it. Whereas here, we have this rather deceptively chaotic cacophony of of this brass section kind of panicking under artillery fire. It's almost the, the negative version of the start to Sergeant Pepper where the orchestra is just setting up. Because here we are shown the war, you know, the conflict, to then be contrasted against the Pipes of Peace. It's a clever little device. Then thankfully there is a ceasefire, a literal ceasefire, and in the clearing through the gun smoke we have the perfect audio framing device to deliver McCartney's tender vocal which, coupled with that wonderfully English T-type Macca keyboard, and boom, you have an intro that has me interested. Like, how can you not be won over by the fact that this song starts with the line, I light a candle to our love? That's just Pete McCartney. And I think that a few people in 1983 would have been up to speed with the notion that he writes songs like this, and that they are great when you let them be, when you don't overanalyze them. I know that's ironic coming from me, but this is an album of simple pleasures. The vocal melody in this song, I, rem I the vocal melody in this song, I remember being surprisingly strong the first time I heard it, and when I came back to it, I can remember not remembering how catchy it was in the first place. I feel like a lot of that is down to the chorus of the backing singers, as it just makes you feel like you are one with them on this world peace mission. Then, when it all comes together at the end with the two vocal melodies being sung atop of each other, and then you know, they're blended so perfectly along with that classical George Martin orchestration, you just know that this is going to be some high quality Paul McCartney work, even if it is going to be a bit mushy. Another question that Pops Piece is going to ask you is how do you feel? How do you really feel about patented Paul McCartney silly love songs? Because by fuck are there going to be a lot of them on this album. Again, Paul isn't exactly being subtle here, people. Get ready. And as you all know, I have a super soft spot for that kind of shtick. 
maybe call it overexposure to his material, but for this song and the album as a whole, I feel like McCartney's sentimental tunes should be taken a little more seriously. And, you know, don't just brush them aside so easily. Especially here, the melody is strong, the production is expansive and, and ambitious, like I say. And even though it is just McCartney singing about love and doing his peace thesis statement for the album, there is so much more going on than perhaps is revealed on that first listen. Macca's voice for the rest of the song uh, is is in that very serene, Rupert the Bear, almost lullaby voice. And then later on you have the chorus of children sweetly singing along with him. Very, very peace and love, peace and love, peace and love. And yeah, it could be a little overblown and over-the-top schmaltzy. Though, who else but Paul could ever hope to attempt to even pull something like this off? Yet let alone stick the landing so well. Not only is it a natural maturation of Paul's themes as an artist as he gets older, but when placed against the market, it also becomes defiantly uncool, and I can only respect that, as Paul can always afford to take some time to indulge, and my preferred type of Paul is when he's just being himself. It should be no shock that Paul was writing a song like this. He was a bit older, a bit wiser, had kids of his own, nuclear war was looming, and his best friend had just been shy, everyone. The music video for this song as well is fantastic. It's going to be one of the highlights of a future videography of Paul McCartney episode. I cannot wait to get into that there. But, spoiler alert, I'm probably going to give it a very good review. The concept of the video is Paul in World War One, where he plays both uh, a man in the British trenches and a man in the German trenches, and on Christmas Day they come together with the armistice and play football together in no man's land. It's a really cool idea for Pipes of Peace, and the execution was so well done. So overall, at this point in the album, I am absolutely hooked. This is easily one of my favourite McCartney singles of the period. It's one of my favourite tracks off the album. And what it does so well is that it just lays all of its cards on the table like, if you think that the album's going to be any different from this opening number, then that's a little naive, really. Paul is letting us know that this is the Peace and Love, Peace and Love album. He's doing it with style and with grandeur. And above all else, a radio-friendly, catchy chorus. What's not to like? Say, say, say. Let's talk about the album. Take yeah. us through track by track. Um, say, say, say is the second track on side one. And that started out when Michael Jackson gave me a ring on the telephone. And he said he'd like to make some hits. So I thought, well, that sounds keen. You know, he sounds positive. And I'd never met him, but I'd, I loved his singing and his dancing. And I'd seen him on telly and stuff. So uh, I was keen to meet him anyway. So he came over to England. He was coming over. So I uh, said, let's get together on that. We sat around for an afternoon, and I was plonking a guitar. And um, we came up with the basis of Say, Say, Say. He went back to his hotel and wrote a lot of words for it. And then we sort of thrashed the whole thing together. And um, that's, the, that's how we done that one. But it just does interest so, me how you make contact. I mean, you, you sit down with Michael Jackson, you've never yeah. met the guy before. Uh -huh. And what actually happens? What's the process? Well, I mean, it, to me, it's like anyone with anyone. I just start talking to him and saying, um, you know, just asking him about his life telling him about mine um sit down and sort of just i don't know you just add a little bit you know just start talking about stuff 
Moving swiftly on to our second song now, and we have the first of Pipes of Peace's major cameo collaborations. Yes, as we went into on our last episode, Pipes of Peace, whilst not really being advertised as such before, during or after, was still very much like Tug of War, an album featuring immense talent in the backing band. Though this time around, I think Paul aimed his sights a little bit higher. Rather than getting the most critically successful man in the business, he was going to work with the most commercially successful. Yes, folks, this is the first of the big Michael Jackson collaborations. Those of a sensitive nature may want to skip this one entirely. Do you hear what I say, say, say? So what is there to, to say, say, say about say, say, say? Well, you just heard some of it there, and it, to me, it just sounds so joyful, fun, and spontaneous. And, again, as far as I'm concerned, all of that is transferred so easily to me, the listener. I feel like I'm there. It's so inclusive and fun. It really just gets you going. Obviously, this song is never going to go down as one of those songs where McCartney and Jacko try to plumb the depths of the human condition. But remember that quote from Michael, he just wanted to make some hits, and this song was a hit with mass appeal written all over it. I can imagine the radios and MTV loving this one. And rather fittingly, this song went to number one in both US, Canada and New Zealand, and number two here in the UK, as well as just being an overall smash hit the world over. Of course, later on, this song was also sampled by the Dutch house group High Tack, and I think I also subconsciously heard this song whilst clubbing in my youth, which may very well be why I'm so familiar with the song and like it so much. Perhaps I'm a little nostalgic for it, but let's just hear a quick clip of that song as well. Oh, that definitely takes me back. But now I'm awfully sorry, folks. I'm going to move on with a slightly digressional movement, as it's something that's been burning me up ever since I went on my first Paul McCartney forum, on my first Paul McCartney internet comment section, or even reading a couple of McCartney books, um, you know, ever since I started re re reading them a couple of years ago as well. And this is something I, I want to ask you as the listener right now. Why do so many people hate Say Say Say? Asking me why I like this song is such a strange notion for me. I never thought I'd have to d defend my love for this song, because it's just so instantly and obviously likeable as a radio-friendly tune. It's not being subtle with it either. Like, this song is in your face trying to be an obviously catchy pop tune. And I can understand... And I can't understand how anyone it doesn't instantly get that and know what it is and know how to approach it and know what you're going to get from it. 
Like, how much of this is a retrospective hate? Because it really was popular at the time, and I wonder how much of the distaste of this song is based on things outside of the music, like Paul's career in general, or the recent controversies surrounding Jackson. I also understand that, in all objective fairness, this song does not live up to the possible imagined heights of what a Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney collaboration duo song could be, but I think that even if we put the novelty of the collaboration aside, I can easily rank this song amongst the best tracks on this album, amongst McCartney's best singles, amongst Jackson's best singles. It was, it's a fantastic result of their time in the, in the studio together, which is just a crazy story in itself. And they just created a perfectly radio-friendly foot-tapper. It's not trying to be anything more than that. You know, this is a cheesy, poptimistic earworm of a track that is meant to just hook you in with, with its simplicity. And by gosh, is this song simple. Like, lyrically, you can literally picture the two of them coming up with the lyrics on the spot and writing them just on a little piece of paper. And then you can further picture them not doing any editing at all with the lyrics and moving on. But it's this very carefree, spontaneous feel that makes the song so enjoyable for me. I'm not saying you have to know the backstory of this song to enjoy it either. I'm just saying that the vibe is a fun one, and when you know about the sessions, that only makes even more sense. Of course, the production, with the addition of the bright, chirpy brass sections, again, elevate the somewhat mediocre material to something much more enjoyable and transcendent for me. Obviously, comparisons are going to be made to McCartney's last number one, aka Ebony and Ivory from Tug of War, which was also a duet with another established artist. But, and this is a big but, surprisingly, Parks of Peace actually wins across the board, I feel, when people compare these. For all the hate that Say 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 gets, it is nothing compared to the hate that Ebony and Ivory gets out there on the internets. So, I always knew that I was going to be walking away with the gold medal for Pipes of Peace in terms of this comparison. Yes, it's not the fairest of competitions, but I've got to take the victories where I can. However, if you have to ask me what's a better song in terms of what's that you're doing, or say, 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 then you've got a different question entirely. I'm not even going to bother comparing the man to what's that you're doing, because that would just be a landslide in general. But the more I think about it, what's that you're doing does hold more of an appeal to me, because Stevie Wonder is also a musician as well, and you get to hear the musicality of Stevie on that as well, whereas this is very much just Jackson as a vocalist. Though, this also has to be one of the best low-key Paul McCartney bass lines from this period. I mean, in fact, this isn't really an album where you really think of as Paul as a bassist at all, or even bass lines. And I'm not too sure if Stanley Clark plays on this one, but it does sound very McCartney-ish to me. And again, this is also another song with a fantastic music video that I cannot wait to cover in a future episode. Most likely this same episode that I cover Pipes of Peace. And I randomly just came across this song while cycling through TV channels the, the other day. It just went through MTV. Or oh, might have been VH1 or something. But bam, this song came on. And it's such a good music video. It's Paul and Michael as these travelling snake oil salesmen. Which I think is the, the greatest metaphor for the pop music industry in general. Uh, great little cameos from Linda and Latoya Jackson in that as well. One thing I do want to say about this song though is that despite the fact that Paul McCartney got Jackson in as a vocalist, McCartney does hold his own in the vocal department on this song as well. It really is a duet. You know, they play off each other. 
and neither obviously outshines the other, which which really creates a, a wonderfully homey atmosphere. Like you know that they're not trying to one up each other or anything. Though rather oddly, when you go back and listen to the remix of this song that came out around 2015, several of the key elements in the vocals of this song with that kind of uh, verse, chorus, verse, taking turn structure has actually been reversed and turned on its head, which makes you completely reinterpret the song in a completely different way, and goes to highlight how balanced Jackson and and goes to highlight how balanced Paul and Jackson's performance in the song really is. Let's listen to that now. And all in all, say, 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 I don't care what people say, say, say about this song. This is a great pop tune. Simple lyricism, simple musicality, but de delivered with fantastic production and two great vocal performances. Like, I still can't believe how well Paul holds his own in this one. And I feel so fortunate that this song even exists in the first place. The other me... ...has been running through my mind, and one of the themes that... I sometimes think about is um, the other me that, that can be uh, a bit better than I normally am. You In know, what way? How, I don't know, how you'd wish you'd be. I mean, if you have an argument and you sit after it and you sort of think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, I don't like these. And then, so that would have been the other me that wouldn't have argued. And uh, that kind of idea, mm -hmm. you know, that, there's, that inside all of us there is someone quite groovy. And you meet him maybe when you're drunk, and you meet him a few times, you know, but he generally doesn't come out. Up next, and we have a song that I can distinctly remember as being one of the very first quote-unquote new McCartney songs that I had personally quote-unquote discovered once I decided to expand my horizons and actually start doing this podcast. It is the first song on the album that is not a single, and of course, it's a love song. But not in the typical McCartney way. This is The Other Me. the other me but I'm also very much aware that I do like some stuff that's rubbish so this is definitely going to be one of those song reviews about perspective again um, there there have been a lot of songs on this show that I try not to call guilty pleasures because I don't actually feel guilty about liking them but boy oh boy folks is the other me on the borderline like I do regularly catch myself singing this one but you have to know your own biases as a critic and I'm fully aware that I am lenient as fuck on lovey dubby macca and to some degree, there is a part of me that is worried that we're already entering the filler McCartney material on this album. There is a, a sense already that there's a, that there's a bit of a step down in quality from the last two top tier tracks. 
But I, I don't need to think I'm being overly cynical here, because I've always at least kind of liked this song, genuinely, with its weird mixture of tenderness and silliness, but I would be lying again if I said that I couldn't understand why someone else wouldn't think that this song is a little all over the place. Again, I don't, but this isn't exactly a showcase song for this album either. Unfortunately, there is a meme attached to this Paul McCartney song, and this would not be a complete review of the song unless I mentioned it in some way. Uh, many of the points made about this song focus solely on this little point here, and let's just get it out of the, out of the way so we can actually have a proper re review of this song. Yes, Paul McCartney does indeed deliver one of his most immediately obvious, in-your-face, cringe-inducing worst lyrics of, of all time. He sings, I know I was a crazy fool for treating you the way I did, but something took a hold of me and I acted like a dustbin lid. Yeah, and I still don't know exactly what it means to act like a dustbin lid, Paul. Like, I want to assume that it's something very, very deep and meaningful, like some part of a meaning to trap something or to cover something up. But in all likeliness, it's simply Paul trying to use the Cockney rhyming slang meaning of dustbin lid, which is kid. And this is probably all just done for the sake of syllables. And Paul probably never thought really all that much of it. But now it's the source of so much hatred, so much hatred whenever Paul's lyrics are mentioned. Now, folks, I already did semi-cover this lame duck clunker uh, of lyricism on my top 20 worst Paul McCartney rhyming couplet episode. And the question is brought up quite regularly. Is this the worst Paul McCartney lyric of all time? Possibly not. You know, uh, may I direct you to She's My Baby from Wings at the Speed of Sound when he sings She's My Baby like gravy down to the last drop. I keep mopping her up. Yeah, yeah, she's my baby. Or even a future example of a lyric might be heard on Press, from Press to Play, which is literally him saying, Darling, I love you very, very, very much. Which I know would make my English literature teachers very, very, very cross. But yeah, the dustbin lid line. It is, understandably, the thing that everyone remembers about this song. I do get that. It is terrible. I am aware of it. But it's at the very start of the song, and once you get past it, Hopefully you can try and enjoy the song for what it is a little bit more. And if you literally cannot enjoy a song because of one bad lyric, then perhaps your you know view of how to enjoy a song might, might be a little bit narrow. I find it personally quite forgivable. The rest of the song has charms that I feel outweigh this lyrical cock-up. It's fine, let's move on. Mostly because lyrically, all dustbins aside, this song always kind of resonated with me. As a 20-something plagued by self-doubt, it is incredibly humanising to hear McCartney sing about other all-too-common human issues. You know, he's Paul McCartney, he's the man, no pun intended. You know, supposedly he struggles to connect with the common person. And after everything he's accomplished, he's still singing about this hypothetical version of himself that he himself is upset that he cannot live up to, you know. Even he sees a version of himself that, that is insurmountable. Like, you know, how many of us could imagine being Paul McCartney? And then there's Paul McCartney here singing about how even he can't live up to that image, which is so different from anything he's typically sung about. It's quite meta for Paul in that sense. I'm not even sure if, if it's that intentional or if it's just like the natural evolution of a lyrical pattern that he was interested in. 
But I love how Paul manages to get those kind of thoughts and still channel it into a Paul McCartney love song, you know. That better version of himself is someone who he imagines his partner wanting to be with as well. So since he can't live up to that person, he wouldn't be surprised if his partner went off to find the better version of him, which might in fact be someone else. It's beautiful lyricism. It's quite restrained from Paul. It's quite subtle. It makes you have to do a little bit of thinking for once. It doesn't hit you on the nose as often as you might think. And conceptually, it's just some pretty wild stuff for me as a McCartney fan. You know, usually it's all sunshines and roses with a track like this. And, you know, for an album like Pipes of Peace, I found it quite striking that we'd have such an introspective, sombre song this early on. And yeah, you know, it's got that air of a, a typical whitewashing of history of McCartney here. You know, he doesn't reveal that he may have actually done any bad things to spur these feelings on or anything. But I do get that this is one of those great, rare peeling back of the Macca curtain. You know, he might be revealing a bit of his true self to us here. And in a strange way, this might be the most honest and raw that he can be with us on this album. Musically, this is definitely the start of his middle-of-the-road stuff that McCartney would be indulging himself with for, say, the next 10 years or so. And whilst it might not be anything that we haven't heard Paul doing better before, I do think, I still think it, it's still quite intentional in its, 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 its makeup there because it's this doubtful, introspective McCartney lyricism and he plays it against quite a typical McCartney ballady jaunt and... Yeah, I do think that's intentional, and that's part of the effect. So, again, by that classic, if Paul focuses on the lyrics, the music will become the second priority, or vice versa. At least that's how I interpreted this song anyway. What this song also does have that always makes me smile is some of that classic Macca panics that the song isn't cool enough, so he's going to chuck in some guitars, style of electric guitar part, just in the middle eighth there. And it's the only part of the song that I've had a little bit of a distaste for, because it kind of breaks the mellow mood for little to no effect really very much the same as in girlfriend from london town possibly that song did it a little better though i'm not quite sure what the other version of me would have to say about the other me but this version of me does love this track but the relationship certainly is a little bit complicated and my relationship with this song kind of typifies the pipes of peace as a whole I'm not going to call any of this stuff guilty pleasure music, like I've said, but I am objectively aware that, that this is not the best of McCartney's material. I'm not saying this is the height of his songwriting or composing or anything. Even though there are parts on this album where you could actually make that argument. But yeah, Pipes of Peace, The Other Me, I'm just saying that this is kind of my thing. This is my kind of McCartney. I do like this soppy stuff and this is Paul doing it incredibly well. Keep undercover. Uh, it, life is something that no one knows about, even Monty Python. Right. Nobody's got it down. The, the Pope, from the Pope to the lowliest vicar in the thing, they you might think they got stuff down, but I've discovered nobody's got it down. I've met prime ministers, presidents, the whole bit, you know, and they're all very just like us. So, um, generally, I think it's agreed, you know, that for most people, it's up and down. You know, you get, you've got a job, you lose your job. Something's great, you win the pools, or whatever you win that's good, and then something bad happens. And I think that that is why you need some kind of faith, even if it is only, it'll work out. I mean, with the Beatles, our thing used to be, our faith used to be something will happen. Whatever happened, you know, we'd be broken. 
on to song number four, and we're finally in for a bit of drama on this album of Peace and Love. This is a track that I'm more than familiar with, as it is the first of the bonus demo tracks at the end of the remastered version of Palms of Peace that I end up listening to, you know, skipping on to the tracks after Through Our Love. But this isn't that song. No, no. Get your helmets and sandbags at the ready. This is Keep Undercover. Keep Undercover. Yeah, after a soppy love song, this is definitely a step in the right direction for this album in terms of giving it a bit of kick and a bit of cool. We are sorely lacking a bit of urgency on this album. And after that tense start, when those string sections kick in, we are off to the races and this song does not let up for the rest of its three minute run. Conceptually, it's also a change of pace for the album since it starkly isn't about peace and love, shockingly. And whilst I don't rank this amongst his best tunes ever either, it is a perfectly serviceable album track that I always look forward to whenever I'm listening to the entire thing in full. And like I said, the one draw, the one thing that the song does have after the last number is that sense of instantaneousness and drama. But if that's not your thing, then drama might not be the best word. And instead, you could definitely see this as McCartney melodrama where he is feeding us some sort of heightened telenovela-esque set of emotions. Like, everything in this song is over the top and produced to the nth degree and is always surging forward and there's no subtlety here whatsoever. As we mentioned in part one, Keep Undercover was one of the very first songs worked on during the Day Took of War sessions. And those early cuts lacking the gripping string arrangements were just a, a chore to sit through. And you could wonder why Maka ever went back to this track at all. And the importance of the contributions of George Martin are very blatant on this track. You know that, that, that this song would be nothing without his production and his orchestrations here. I think we can both agree that Maka is, is, is a brilliant producer, but he's always at his best with a, a strong guiding hand. And Martin, once again, takes some fairly standard material from McCartney here. And once you've listened to both versions, those tug of war, the tug of war session versions versus the Pops of Peace one, you can just appreciate how so much work would have had to have been put in by Martin to have achieved McCartney's mad vision here. Like, it might not have much depth to it, but the end product we get is so polished, and you can only appreciate how ambitious this track is because it mixes so much obviously the string section is what carries the song from start to finish and they're so cinematic and whilst they are so obviously regal and classical the way they're blended together with the kind of modern pop rock middle of the road adult contemporary sound does give a bit of a contemporary flair to them 
And like I say, you have that growly guitar mixed in there, and then some weird, strangely little synthy sounds towards the end as well. And then just for good measure, Paul gets bored right at right at the end and throws some little synthy keyboard moogie sounds in right uh, just as it's closing as well. Not not sure what happens there, but I do kind of like it as well. Lyrically, again, I'm admittedly a bit 50-50 on this one. There is that ever-present element for me here where McCartney's clearly trying to do that thing where he's, he's trying out an idea or a writing scheme and he's trying to craft the whole song around it before he does anything too interesting conceptually or lyrically, which is something we're going to hear possibly a lot more on this episode. And in complete contrast to the other me that we just had before where I mentioned how Paul was focusing on the, on the lyrics so the music suffers, this is that vice versa. The, there is so much focus on the music and the production in this one that you don't even really listen to the lyrics at all. It, it's just a bit of Paul shouting throughout the duration of it. And I'm not going to lie, it's, and I'm not going to deny that it's not a powerful Paul, Paul McCartney vocal that, along with Linda and Eric Stewart's fantastically shouty harmonies, only further add excitement to the song. But I've listened to this song several dozen times now, and I can barely tell you any of the lyrics now, which isn't a particularly good sign. Just before we move on, I do like the idea that this song may have actually been better off on Tug of War. We've spoken about how this song is quite effective in in, in terms of sequencing. You know, we've had the other meaning, and then it goes straight into this very melodramatic, in-your-face type of song. But is it very Pipes of Peace? Whilst I do like it and I do like its placement on the album, it, it does stand out a little. It doesn't quite fit the flow or the tone, uh, either either conceptually or in its arrangement. And as we're going to see with another song later, uh, sometimes that can be something that I, I, I see quite uh, exciting and daring. Which makes me glad that the Pipes of Peace and Tug of War sessions did have some overlap and they did bleed into each other somewhat because it does lend some credence to the idea that these two albums are linked and this song is one of those keystones in that argument. Overall, Keep Undercover is a very fun song. Again, I mostly like this one. It may be the softest of soft rock with little erection to it whatsoever, but I'll always appreciate this song for its production. But it is very surface level McCartney. There's not a lot going on here to really chew on, you know? The production was very high quality and exciting. You know, it's got a very live and let die quality to it there. There is still a part of me that, that feels that even though McCartney came back to this song all those months later, I still don't think he actually got the final concept down. I, 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 I still don't think his final vision of this song was ever achieved. Uh, the, the first time was way off the mark. This, this, this second one, the album version, may have been closer. But the fact that McCartney's never played this song live just kind of screams to me that, that we have never gotten the true version of this song. So bad! Um, I wrote... Uh, it seemed to me just a kind of little tune that was very, very simple. And sometimes when you get tunes like that, you you worry about them. You think it's just too simple. It must be another song. Or uh, maybe it's, it's just too simple to just sit there. But uh, with So Bad, I liked it, you know, and uh, I don't want to go on just saying how I like all my own stuff and that. But uh, this particular tune, you know, has struck me as being a nice, simple tune. And... Um, 
main memory for me on it is the reason why it says, boy, I love you so bad, is that I used to sing, girl, I love you so bad, and uh, what happened was my son, who's six, was feeling a bit left out, you know, and I could sort of see this, so I had to work in, boy, I love you so bad, too. So we had a little bit with the girl says, uh, where I say, and she said, boy, I love you. And then he'd smile, you see, at that little bit. So that's how I worked that in. Um, boy, I love you so bad. Now, on this show, I always try to shy away from the Waldorf and Sadler book of jokes from The Muppet Show, or the go-to musical journalism big book of puns. Oh no, wait, no I don't. And thank God too, because the title of this next song is prime material for snide critics to twist around for an easy one-liner. Prepare for the Paul McCartney song that is, oh so bad, it's so bad! This is the second song on this episode where I'm going to be spending the majority of my time justifying why I'm not going to completely eviscerate the track. <laughs> because I just cannot bring myself to say anything at all declamatory about this sweet and kind-hearted little number. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, this is easily the worst song that we've talked about so far on this album. But this song's intentions are just so pure. And the arrangement is so saccharine and gooey that even though it isn't my love or maybe I'm amazed... You still enjoy it all the same. We talk about pure McCartney here on this show a lot. Not the album, but the state of mind. And this to me is pure, gushy, sappy, lovey-dovey McCartney at his most unabashed and shameless. And I've already said before, that's kind of my thing. Paul's voice is obviously the standout element of this track. And I know there's been an ocean of McCartney fans out there who have tried and failed to match the falsetto pitch that he has used in this song. It's definitely going to be one of those Marmite, love it or hate it points in the song for you and will totally dictate the rest of how you approach the material. The first time you hear it, my god is it quite jarring. It's not really a voice that Paul has really experimented with much before, but again, it's something quite different from Pass the Peace, something that is actually unique in his discography that that we've got another song here now where Paul is taking the time on this supposedly lower tier album to showcase a different weapon in his arsenal and once you've absorbed the song for me his vocal performance here is low-key one of the best on the album certainly one of the most unique in his whole career well not that unique Because less than a year later, even though this song was the B-side for the title track for this album, Paul would already be taking another stab at So Bad for the soundtrack for Give My Regards to Broad Street. I'm not so sure what it is about the version from Pipes of Peace that caused Paul to redo it so soon, but the newer version does indeed do much away with the experimentally high-pitched vocals here and gives them a much more standard adult contemporary twist. 
This is also probably one of the best songs to talk about the post-Denny Lane harmonies here of Paul, Linda and Eric, because we really do get to hear them go for it during the Well, it feels so good moments here. And whilst in no way is there a sense that the vocals have, you know, become any worse, you know, they are now just different, they're just with a different group, I am still leaning more towards the classic Wings trio of Paul, Linda and Denny, just because that's more iconic. They have a certain magical quality that no studio wizardry can recapture. But I certainly like this stuff more than, say, the live vocal harmonies during the live 1989 Pombo tour. I also have to give a little shout out to Paul's bass playing in this one. It's absolutely gorgeous and you would not expect it to be as playful and as exploratory for this type of song, you know. You'd think that it would, it would clash with the vocal, but they both work together so wonderfully. Now, whilst I say there must have been an ocean of fans who have tried to sing along to this, I, I hope it wasn't in public. You know, you don't want to be caught trying to sing these lyrics out in public because, again, that's where, where we're going to find most of the grievances in this track. I get that, you know, again, this may be a case of some of Paul's naturalistic, automatic love writing that we're going to see time and time again. But blimey, is this one embarrassing to be caught singing. Even worse, to be caught singing this whilst watching the music video, because that is a totally lifeless, lame duck music video. Cannot wait to talk about that one again in detail in a future episode. That is a, a music video that in no way makes any attempt to make this song cooler. Now, I know this song's quite anemic, and it feels kind of half... not fin Now, in terms of sequencing, I've always found this song to be a very strange number to close side one. It doesn't leave you quite excited to flip over to side two. This was always going to be one of those songs that depended on on, on how I felt on the day. And there was a, a, a definite risk that I could have just totally slaughtered this one and hung it out to dry. But I know I would be lying if I said that I didn't have the softest of spots for this gooey number. And the whole package, when you actually just look at it objectively, literally is... A silly love song. This song is ridiculous. It is so silly. It is frankly comedic in how shameless it is. And again, I think that's possibly what draws me to it. Like, this is a song that does not care how dorky and lame it is. And I find that quite charming. The Man. Okay, side two. The song The Man was... Um after Michael Jackson and myself had written Say Say Say, um, Michael wanted to keep going, and I had a bit of an idea for an introduction, which is the introduction of the man. Um, and I was playing it to him, you know, on the piano, and sort of saying, look, how's about this chords and that? And uh, the, the way we worked was we had a cassette going. And then after that little session, he took it back to his hotel and appeared the next day with the entire words to the whole thing you know oh good thank you very much <laughs> two and six for you and uh, and uh, that was it He'd, you know so it was like music me generally and uh, words my that. music you and words him um, did you look at the words and possibly slightly resent the idea of somebody else doing taking the idea and then adapting it no I, I liked the words you know I liked uh, what he'd done and stuff it seemed to fit um, I, I'm not really fussy, you know, I do so much, and I've had so many hits, that I'm not really jealous of anyone else having them. Uh, I'm not, you know, because I've, I've done very well, you know, so I can't afford to just sort of sit back and not be too jealous when someone comes up with something uh, 
That's good. And to open up side two, we have a rip-roaring, white-bread little guitar riff that welcomes us to the lesser of the Michael Jackson collaborations from this album. This is The Man. This is The Man. I've always felt like this was the ugly duckling of the Michael Jackson projects because Say 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 was huge, The Girl Is Mine went, went on to Thriller, and then The Man is just, well, The Man. I don't think there was any great injustice in this song being the lesser of the three. The reason for that fact is pretty simple. The Man just comparably isn't that memorable. Like, I grew up in a home where Jackson was played regularly, where Paul McCartney was played quite regularly, and I'd never come across this song before this podcast, and you barely read anything about it out there on the interwebs or in the literature. And um, I guess I'm kind of grateful for that, really, because the man in opposition to say, to say, 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 shows what can happen after a session produces one good song that basically takes all the good ideas with it. You know, I've been moving tentatively into the 1980s with Paul McCartney here. It's a period that, frankly, I'm quite terrified of. And it is with songs like this where I can really start hearing that naff 80s production really starting to overpower the sound here. And it starts sounding less and less like classic Paul. I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, this sounds like generic 80s adult contemporary more than classic Paul McCartney. It's him aiming for an audience that isn't necessarily his. Obviously, that's because he is with Jackson. But whereas the fun and the exciting melody of Say, Say, Say kind of plasters over its, its falseness, um, the lack of something really interesting to move the man forward uh, just makes it so obviously generic. This definitely could have slipped onto Thriller than Say 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 ever could. <laughs> Though for me, the song does work better as the opener for Side 2 than it does standing on its own two feet as an independent song. Like, the transition from the quiet lull at the end of So Bad to that guitar solo and those string sections is rather wonderfully sequenced. And whilst listening to the entirety of Pipes of Peace and when I'm in that mindset, then, yeah, I really do feel like this song has a lot more to offer. But that only because it works within the whole theme of love and peace across the whole album. You know, I guess spirits are so high that Paul can slip in a relatively non-plus song under the radar and no one, no one notices. In terms of lyricism, this song really has nothing to offer either. And whilst the uplifting melody, heartfelt string sections and Jackson's admittedly magical voice may trick you into thinking this song has some inherent meaning, trust me, it doesn't. Like, it is literally just about a guy that you shouldn't doubt and how he's secretly awesome. Which just sounds uh, uh, worryingly too self-serving in my, in, in my eye, really. But, like, who is, who is this man? Why do we care? It's never answered, is it? 
Going back to how tug of war and pipes of peace are inextricably linked, uh, Paul shook up the formula this time around, whereby um, indeed he, he does do two songs with his high profile guest, but the second time around here, uh, the better song became the single. Both times it was obviously the most commercial song, but here on Pipes of Peace, it's clear that the man is as close to a throwaway song that a collaboration between Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson could ever produce. This song is incredibly beige. The melodrama that it strays towards is nowhere near as well done or well realised as, say, something like Keep Undercover. And that passion-starved weak, limp-wristed guitar that takes no advantage of the session musicians on this album is is just infuriating is just infuriatingly bland to listen to. This is never a song that I'll actually, you know, go and seek out and I probably will skip it if it comes on shuffle. And whilst this has been an episode where I've been, you know, turning a blind eye, shall we say, to some of the naffer tropes in Paul McCartney's songbook this is just not one of those songs where I can turn that blind eye, you know. I would really be showing myself up, I feel, if I was to give this song a particularly positive review because because this is the definition of filler material on this album. Sweetest little show. So you find yourself stuck with just what was going to be a song, but stopped short, you know, and it's just it's like a little painting instead of a big one. And what I found myself doing over the years with things like that is seeing if any of them will join together to make a sort of longer piece. And this was going to go with two others, but we didn't like the two others in the end. It didn't join up right. And, um, but we liked the sweetest little show bit. Next up we have what is, in my opinion at least, the end of the clearly subpar tracks on Pipes of Peace with what I can only describe as a Ringo Starr type song called... Sweetest little show. What if they treat you like a lover? They got the sweetest little show in town. They got the sweetest little show. Sweetest little show. Sweetest little show show in town. You got the sweetest little show. Sweetest little show. Sweetest little show. Okay, you caught me. This isn't actually a Ringo Starr song, but you just heard that then. It may very well have been. You know, it's not even that that the lyrics are bad. I just don't feel like they gel particularly well with this song. Maybe it's the, the country vibe. The country vibe doesn't particularly fit the album as a whole, personally. And I feel that, like... Like lyrically and in terms of the the vocal range, this song is probably more appropriate for a Ringo Starr type track. And once again, it just continues that theme of, you know, whilst I enjoyed the songs, the lyrics are just not things that you actually ever want to be caught singing in the shower. Uh, it's it, it, it's another pretty lame duck song. I remember this song being described in one of the articles that I was reading as one of McCartney's 
love letter to the fan type songs, you know, uh, you know, from me to you or she loves you. One of those ones where he's trying to be very inclusive with the audience. And I can definitely see that as being the theme of this one. Like, you know, he's saying that this album is the sweetest little show. And a lot of the lyrics, you know, concern uh, making the audience smile and stuff like that. So I can see how Paul is definitely playing up the vaudeville aspect of this song in a, a very direct way. But it doesn't have any of the charm of something like, say, Honey Pie or You Gave Me The Answer, which actually sounds like one of those songs. This is Paul with a, a weird country acoustic sound, but still trying to achieve the same effect. And I'm not sure any of it works at all. This is going to be another one of those completely shameless and unaware songs that is just Paul going for that mood that he wants to achieve. It's that vaudeville showmanship, lovey-dovey writing that he has proven to be effective time and time again. Only here, the results just don't work for me at all. I'm really sorry, folks. I don't have all that much to say about Sweetest Little, Little Show. It's just not a song that has ever quite resonated with me. And this is part of the album that I tend to skip over just so I can get on to the ending closing section of the album that I really do find a lot more interesting. For those of you out there who heard me on my Egypt Station Explorers edition episode, I think you will remember that I actually compared this song to his recent track 67th Street. And they've both got that that twangy, silly little acoustic guitar thing going on. But at least 67th Street has more of that nostalgic twinkle that can only come from the elderly Paul singing these types of songs. And even though Paul is, you know, pushing 40 at this point, he's still meant to be kind of like a contemporary rocker. And this is just not cool material at all. You know, in terms of me trying to defend Pipes of Peace... This is a song that I will gladly leave to die. Like, I will not go back for this song. I will, I, will, I will gladly devote my energy to protecting the other ones from the harshness of the conflict. And I could definitely jettison this song off the album for something like Simple As That or Rain Clouds or It's Not On. Because this is exactly what people were talking about in terms of McCartney just losing his ability to connect with his audience. Like, I am totally fine with Pipes of Peace being overly stuffed with silly love songs. But this one is just going past the point of parody now, isn't it? Like, So Bad was... You can only get away with a song like So Bad once. And this is the same kind of cheesy, nostalgic romanticism that I could just imagine driving George Harrison and John Lennon mad. The only part of the song that really does kind of interest me is this, again, M McCartney panic moment where he, he feels like the song hasn't really done anything for a while. And it's almost a moment of classic Professor McCartney uh, with the little musical breakdown at the end of the song where at first it starts with this very whimsical duo, with this very whimsical duo of angelically harmonizing acoustic guitars which is really beautiful and then it fades into this like canned audio of studio applause it's 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 very it's very very strange i'm guessing it's him trying to fit the theme of the literal sweetest little show but it's definitely too little too late because musically this song just has so little to offer it's just the same thing repeated over and over again mccartney's bleeding that stone of a melody dry and whilst I've defended many songs on this album for saying that they are simply my thing, this is simply not my thing. And 
I find it very easy to skip it again, just to, to, just to move on to the next stuff, which is what I'm going to do now as well on this podcast. Average person. Some songs won't go beyond the first verse. They just, it's not easy to develop them. You get, you get an idea and you say it all in the first verse. And then sometimes you look, you look for a little extension in the second verse and it's just not there. You sort of feel, well, I've said everything about that song just in that first verse. And now you can get on to how her brother feels about it or something or, you know, and you look for things, but it doesn't come easily. So you find yourself stuck with just what was going to be a song, but stopped short, you know, and it's just, it's like a little painting instead of a big one. And what I found myself doing over the years with things like that is seeing if any of them will join together. Next up, we have what is quite possibly the most all over the place, in the best kind of way, Paul McCartney track on this entire album. And whilst jokes you can make up about the title of this song write themselves, the album does admittedly start to pick up here with Average Person. Yes, this is another track that I am oh so smitten with. The vocal melody in this one is just pure silly McCartney. And this is just continuing this album's theme of pushing that sing-along ability, if that's a phrase. You know, just every single song you just want to sing along. It's so fun. It's so inviting and relaxing. And now we've got McCartney doing a kind of similar ballroom dancing, runaway piano type track here where he's doing this really kooky little call and answer thing with Linda and Eric, you know, talking to a former engine driver, driver! Like, it's got a fantastic pace and rhythm to it, and very much like Keep Undercover, you know, we're going against that type of all of these songs being slow and ballad-like. And we've had a couple of attempts from McCartney now, uh, where he's trying to connect with or correctly observe the common man. You know, songs like London Town or I've Had Enough tend to fall a little flat when actually demonstrating McCartney having any idea of, you know, what is the common man. And Average Person is another attempt at that exploration, as well as Paul sticking to another particular writing scheme that he's grown fond of. This is the song where Paul is going to find an average person going about their daily lives and interact with them in a way so as to reveal their greatest hopes and dreams. And the whole idea is Paul trying to walk around the streets meeting average people and connecting with them. And within the overall arc of the album, I kind of get it. You know, he's he's had the sweetest little show and it's almost like he's come down off the stage and he wants to be amongst these people, you know, live amongst us all in peace. But he's kind of scuppered by the fact that he is Paul McCartney. Like, he's gotten to live the greatest fantasies of a thousand people and yet he isn't able to do anything interesting with that dichotomy almost. Um, he seems to stare at people through a lens still rather than truly having a meaningful social interaction with them. 
And he's definitely, you know, scared of comparing himself to them. You know, he doesn't mention how fortunate he is in this song. Definitely not. But he does have this uh, fascination almost with unfulfilled potential, perhaps, in this song. Which may give you more to chew on mentally than you might first think. Like, yeah, we all have dreams. We're all the same on the inside. Can you imagine that Paul is also one of these people as well? Um, you know, maybe if, Paul, you mentioned something from your life in this track that kind of connected you to these people a little bit more. You know, there is there is a bit of a, a Teddy Boy air to the songwriting in, in, in this way. It does feel a little unfinished, as it were. Like, I'm not quite sure what the final point Paul is fully trying to make here. Maybe he doesn't either. Like 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 I say, this there is a writing scheme, there is a repetition in this song that Paul is going to get every penny's worth out of. And by the time you come to the end of it, he's basically moved on to the next song. And by the time you come to the end of it with all of your questions, he's basically moving on to the next song. Though I don't think this song is meant to be taken all that seriously. Um, and Shock Horror, I do like this track. I know I've kind of gone into uh, the dark depths of it there. But, you know, very much like The Other Me, this is one of those ones that it's so lame and schmaltzy that you just have to enjoy it for what it is. Again, with most of this album, you can't make it something it's not. You can't try and make it something cooler than it is, because this isn't cool. This is this is Paul doing something that he needs to do every few years to get out of his system. Something like Kisses from the Bottom, for example. But being the Paul McCartney fan that I am, I cannot deny that there is a very charming vaudeville aspect to Paul here that he's displaying across this album and he's doing it again here I find it quite hard to resist like when you've got Paul and George Martin hitting those keys in that take it away ballroom dancing runaway style that we heard on the on the last album it just invokes such a universal sense of silly innocent fun and I know I kind of took the piss out of the demo version of this song from the tug of war era on our last episode but even that tune has a similar lame charm to it Especially in its kind of underproduction, where how it's going like boo, 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 boo. average person again, another one of those songs where you really cannot imagine it making its way out of the cutting room floor if George Martin had not been involved to spruce it up a bit. There are loads of bells and whistles in this one that that does elevate it from a song from an average joke intended song. And thank God it is there, because this is a charming little number, but it did need a bit of boost to to distinguish it from, again, other average Paul McCartney tracks. This is another song that I always revisit. It's one of my favourite tracks from the album. And in terms of all of the songs where I'm feeling semi-embarrassed to admit how much I like them, I would definitely put this one up there in terms of the more commercial and less dorky material from the album. Just before I go, it is funny how I mentioned how, like, on Keep Undercover, how both of those tracks do have a certain speed and energy to them that is not seen across Pipes of Peace. And I guess all of those points that I made with that song can be applied to Average Person again here. I do like the way that Average Person does feel a little askew, that it isn't quite meant to be on Pipes of Peace. And that is what gives Pipes of Peace that little extra dose of pizzazz that just stops it from being literally just an album of love ballads and thank god it it isn't just that because i would not have found it nearly as palatable but again the strength of tug of war but again you know the strength of mccartney is his ability to go back to previous sessions and apply those songs to the new album you know hey hey you surround yourself by familiar by people who are familiar to you Hmm. 
uh, and people who are first rate at what they do, is that because you need their musical ability or because you feel more secure with them, with familiar names like Ringo? Well, actually, there's only a few familiar names. Michael Jackson I'd never recorded with ever before. True. Ringo, of course, I had a lot. Steve, I had never, Steve Gadd I'd never recorded with till a uh, Tug of War album. Mm. Eric I'd never worked with before, except the last couple of years. Um, be, but before that I'd never worked with him. Andy uh, I've worked with a bit. Stanley hadn't done before. So, uh, in actual fact, I don't know a lot of these people. And uh, some of the times that's that's worse. I mean, I wish I, I had sort of just got people around me who just was a security blanket, you know, because they've got to meet me, I've got to meet them, and we've got to then do music together. So what's the criteria? Have you asked? Well, that was good question, music. question number no, three. No, 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 it right. wasn't stupid question, no, because I do understand what you mean about... Um, it is cosy, and I, in a way, I do like an easy life, you know, so it is very good to have Ringo around drumming, because I know him, and he knows me, and George Martin. It's, it's good to have your security blankets, no, no bones about that, miss. Pressing on forward, and we come on to a trio of tracks that I was very excited to write about and even more excited to talk about right now. The first of these tracks is a fantabulously groovy little number called Hey Hey. There are many times on a McCartney album where he'll realise that he is in fact supposed to be a rock and roll act and that there blatantly hasn't been enough rock or instrumental showy-offy prowess on display on the vinyl. And whenever that happens, he will very knowingly just dump some badass, albeit contextless rock on us as an emergency remedy. Sometimes these attempts can fall flat on their face, but here I can proudly say that, that this is a wonderful breath of fresh air onto this album. Yeah, part of that is based on how white bread the last three songs were, but whenever I listen to this goofy little doodle of a jam, a huge smile is smeared right across my stupid face. You rarely, if ever, get McCartney jam sessions like this on his albums, which, considering how fun Hey Hey is, is a shame, really. Like, thank God this isn't disc three of All Things Must Pass or anything. But in terms of these sessions, a song like this really makes sense. Like, if you're going to have all these big-name musicians all in one space, then you may as well just put them all in a tiny room and let them cut loose. The mixture of talent and spontaneity results in, a, in another one of those refreshingly, uncharacteristically, un-McCartney-style songs on the album. Like, what I was immediately reminded of with this song was something like the, the Rockestra theme, whereby, you know, Paul's got all these big names together and, you know, got a very, a very simple vocal to build the whole thing around. But here, it just seems so much more fun without Paul obviously directing everyone and micromanaging everyone what to do. Like here, it does just feel like a jam. And and with the talent that's on this album, it was never gonna go wrong. We've spoken about what songs belong on what album, but when I first found out that Hey Hey was in fact one of the hangover songs from the Tug of War sessions, I suddenly realized that yeah, that totally makes sense. And this is literally just like a song that would appear on Tug of War. 
Like it's like it's the same tape. It's probably unaltered at all. Now I know the two albums bleed into each other, but in this case, it's a lot more specific as that funky yet jagged electro soundscape with that focus on guitar and bass is a dead ringer for something like What's That You're Doing. And I guess that's why I like Hey Hey being exactly where it is. Like it's almost brazenly and boldly on the wrong album. I generally find the choice to place it in, in, in such a borderline inappropriate fashion is all part of the fun. Yes, this is another one of those songs on the podcast whereby if you told me a year ago that this would have been my jam, I probably would have scoffed in your face. But now I stand here as a champion of Hey Hey. And I say champion because whilst I've been researching this album as a whole, one of the other through lines that came up time and time again was that if they weren't going to bash Say 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 as a song for this album, then they would definitely bash Hey Hey. Even in Luca Perez's book, uh, The Paul McCartney Recording Sessions, he mentions that it was an error in quality control that this song made it onto the album. And again, this may be down to my limited perspective and random Google results, but I do not understand at all why anyone would hate this song. Like, yeah, it's a little bit inconsequential, and you, you could see it as a bit of an extended be-what-you-see style link, but to me, it, it feels like a whole song. It feels like something worth listening to on its own. I will gladly listen to Hey Hey separately from the rest of the album. And as a song, it does achieve what it sets out to do, which is to inject a bit of silly fun onto this album. And it and that's to inject a bit of carefree fun onto this album and to jazz it up a little bit. And I cannot deny that it doesn't do that. Honestly, folks, I love this one. I love Hey Hey. Go check it out if you haven't heard it already. Tug of Peace. Pipes of Peace. Tell me about it. Pipes of Peace. I was actually... Uh, I got a letter off George Melly, an old friend. All right. And um, he said that some society that was uh, looked after kids wasn't the Pestalozzi people who are the choir of children that sing on it, but it was uh, some society of kind of, you know, united children's of the world job. Um, wanted, we're interested in uh, getting a song that would sort of say, point up the plight of kids, you know, a, a charity song, really. And um, so I plonked away for a bit and and got a, a bit of the song, which is I'd call the verse, this um, first bit, in answer to George's request. Um, then it sort of changed a little bit and became Pipes of Peace, which I thought, well, you know, that's still doing what he wanted, really, you know, which was like anything really to uh, say to people, I feel this way about all those poor kids in Beirut or wherever it is at, at any given time. I feel that it is good to help rather than turn your back and so therefore I mean you find I suppose you, I don't know if you do but I find a lot of people these days worried about how it's all going to work out or even if it's going to get beyond next year you know so really for me it's just if I've got some kind of opportunity to say let's look after the kids you know and let's be uh, let's, uh, in 60s terminology, let's vibe it and let's, let's, you know, let's do it right. Instead of just really get it wrong and blow ourselves up. This episode is, of course, ever burdened with comparisons to Tug of War. And now I fear the effort to escape such juxtapositions is now truly futile, as we have the Bradgelina slash Kim Ye of 80s Paul McCartney content. Mashup of all mashups, this is Tug of Peace. It's a dog. 
So this is Tug of Peace, and forgive me, Ken, uh, Michaels, if you're listening out there right now, but I'm going to overthink this one again. I've got to get this out of my system because a title like Tug of Peace is just begging to be overanalyzed. Like, is this title uh, a hint at the conflicted... Na- like, is this title hinting at the conflicted nature about that? Like, is this title meant to reflect the conflicted feelings Paul had about this whole tug of war slash pipes of peace concept? Is it meant to show? Is it meant to show an evolution from tug of war to tug of peace? Like, you know, is the real solution between tug of war and pipes of peace, or is Paul trying to highlight the the uh, constant dance between war and peace? You know, that very grey area. You know. You, you can't have one without the other. Is that something he's trying to draw our attention to? You know, my mind is reeling. The problem is, as with all things on this show, the truth is probably more than likely much more mundane with Paul lightly messing around in the studio with the existing tracks. And then through linking Pipes of Peace to Tug of War, he probably came up with this unique concept in the process. Again, I will say you would not have expected this type of experimental song on the album. And whether you like it or not, you do have to admire the attempt. Personally, though, I've always loved this song and its title. Um, the title especially just because of how cheesy the entire concept is. Like, whilst being a perfectly serviceable title for getting the concept across, which it does well, it's also got the air of like a terrible title that some sort of seven-year-old came up with. Again, like the last track, it's bold in how goofy the whole thing is, especially since this song is featured at the end of Pipes of Peace rather than, say, as like a separate single after both Tug of War and Pipes of Peace came out. Like... He's tying the two albums together at the end of one album. Like it, 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 It's all very strange. But thematics and sequencing aside, I am really down with this song. It's the closest thing we have to an actual proper attempt from Paul to, to connect those two albums together. And whilst I'm still unsure as whether he actually achieves that, the resultant song is still one of the coolest things on the album. And the fact that Paul is just trying to bring everything full circle by combining two title tracks from two albums with some electro dance music is just as strange as it is awesome. It's also pretty ambitious, considering that he's referencing a song that's not even on this album, it's from the previous album, and yeah, that album was huge. But still, aside from something like Metallica's The Unforgiven Parts 1, 2, and 3, you really don't see this kind of this kind of direct cross-referencing on albums. Like, yeah, you, you know, you might get the odd lyrical callback with Lennon saying the, the, the walrus was Paul. But this is a literal mashup of a song that you've heard from a previous album. And it only goes to highlight just how creative Paul was being in this period. Like, the sessions are well and truly over, and yet Paul has come up with another idea. He's been inspired, and now we get this at the end. It's, you know, you really can't slow this guy down in the studio, and these projects are never truly finished. I will say now, though, I can't quite tell whether this song uses the old tapes from the Tug of War sessions, or if McCartney recreated those songs during the new ones, like maybe with, maybe with Linda and Eric on hand, maybe. But what you can tell about this song, though, is that it has been created as a completely solo venture by Mad Professor McCartney, my favourite type of McCartney, because you've got those drum machines and loops, and, you know, the, the fact that, that the song is more of a groove than an instrumental melody indicates that this is late in the sessions, long after the all-star, that's, you know, star with one R, band has departed. Of course, people who listen to this show will be very familiar of my love for all things Mad Professor McCartney, you know, McCartney 2 right the way up to Twin Freaks. And this song is more proof that the Pops of Peace sessions were not as boring and were not as simple as you probably first guessed. Because then you've also got Simple As That and It's Not On, which are also very skewed towards the McCartney techno-babble style. 
And I just find it so funny because Tug of War was the album where he had the whole band for most of the... the, the but it does make me laugh because for Tug of War, he's got the band for most of the recording. So it's a very band focused album where everyone kind of kind of features. But for Pops of Peace, where McCartney's left on his own to his own devices to some degree, he comes out with McCartney to stuff like this. And that's just great for me. It's right up my alley because, you know, he just throws us back into that stream of consciousness type of, you know, free flow song where anything can be thrown at you and it all blends and it all works wonderfully i know that paul actually didn't wasn't actually that proud of this album and he mentions that it wasn't uh, produced or sequenced very well i don't get that at all i do have a thing for the odder mccartney numbers of course and they don't come much odder than this especially on this album but again there is no song like this in, in the rest of paul's discography and it makes a nice change from something like a medley or something like that and what we get is a delightfully what the fuck type track that does hint at that kind of so-called funkier pubs of peace album but i'm glad it but i am glad the rest of the album wasn't quite as quote-unquote funky because this song works better on an album that is decidedly not cool it stands out all the more and makes it all the more interesting yeah i i never thought i'd say it but i really like tug of peace through our love through our love is a love song um is it to anybody it's, uh, well, to me, it, it's to Linda, who's my missus. For, for anybody else listening to it, it's hopefully it's for their uh, friend, whoever it be. Um, in my mind, it's it's a good one for, like, newly marrieds. If you're going to get behind marriage and not just sort of think, oops, we got married, what do we do now? If you're going to get behind it, you took actually vows, and you can either, we giggle through ours, but afterwards... You know, because it's also funny standing up there saying it all dead serious now, and Linda was hooting away. But <laughs> um, but afterwards, you realise you have stood up in front of someone and you've said, yes, I will, and I'll promise to be okay to her, and, you know, in sickness and in health. And I think there can be a great feeling, uh, if you're lucky, uh, with newlyweds, where you do start thinking, hey, you know, this is different, and we can do stuff we couldn't do, and we're now, I had someone talking about yesterday, two halves of a two people are really only a half each and when they sort of come together in something like love or a, a good relationship like that, is that they really become oh yeah and I do I think that that is great you know when you have those sort of periods when hopefulness is at its height I think that's good for you I think it feels great it's optimistic you can get on with things without just worrying all the time um, it'd be nice to think it could last longer than it lasts but um, then you get whatever you get and it, it suddenly um, you know, Maxwell Silver Hammer or something for our older viewers. And finally, rounding off both side to this album and the episode as a whole, we have a song that has a very, very important place in my heart for a few years now. This is a song that has become one of my all-time Paul McCartney favourites, really, and my affection for it was instantaneous back then. Get ready for one hell of a bookender, folks. This is Through Our Love. Yeah. 
There's never been a time after the first time I heard this song that I did not absolutely love it. Like, my opinion on this song has never changed since I first heard it. McCartney's most heartfelt love songs, as you know, are a weak spot for me. Hopefully a great many of you out there, actually. And like so many McCartney albums where there hasn't been a whole lot of true prestige material for a while in these moments of drought, it is songs like this that feel all the more quenching. You know, we've had silly love songs, pop songs, even soppy love songs. But here, to end it all, Paul goes back to his core songwriting book and writes a serious, proper love song. This is the true Linda song of the album, and what a way to finish it off. If the titular opening song was McCartney's thesis statement for the album, then Through Our Love is certainly seen as his closing statement. We've had In Love All Problems Disappear, and now we have Through Our Love We Can Do Things They Said Were Impossible. Like How uplifting is that? How, how inspiring? Unlike the concept of Pepper, where the theme is only really there in the first and last songs, Peace and Love is seen throughout this album. And whilst you might think that it might be a little bit too much now to cap it all off with yet another love ballad, it's, it's just so powerful that it pulls it off wonderfully. When compared to the regular two types of McCartney album closes, which is like the massive rock song or the tender ballad, most people would tend to put Through Our Love in the latter category, but that's more down to the lyrics than the instrumentation. Because if you look at the melody and the way it's all, like arranged, Through Our Love is actually the big bombastic ending like Morse Moose and the Grey Goose or 1985 or something like that. But it's done through the lens of the Pipes of Peace production. Like, this is so uplifting, everyone. That triumphant brass section in particular, along with those grandiose strings, can only warm the cockles of your heart. And it does trick you somewhat into thinking that you've been on a greater journey than you have been on. Speaking of journeys, you know when you create your own music video when you're looking at the window of some public transport or something like that? Well, I always associate this song with train journeys or bus journeys or cycling around big old horrible cities. And my thorough research has proven that Through Our Love can turn any mundane situation into a life-affirming concerto movement. In terms of comparing this song to, say, like the closer of Tug of War in Brunei and Ivory, there really is no competition. Like, I know I have fun being the contrarian, but there is no way that I could ever call Ebony and Ivory better than Through Our Love. Like, this is actual a proper song that's meant to be taken seriously. I put this up high with all prestige McCartney material. This is not in the same realm as Crossroads or Warm and Beautiful, Krina Craw, or even however absurd that's, that's going to end the next album. After an album of, you know, Paul being quite experimental and being a little bit silly, Through Our Love is him going back to basics, taking the whole thing rather seriously and ending it on an appropriately high note. Again, not too much to say about this one. I find the music is best to explain my feelings on it. it you know, it's not very subtle like the rest of the album. It does go for the heartstrings. McCartney knows how to stimulate your emotions in that way and of course he does this song gets me right in the heart every, every time you know and on a final note this will actually be the very last song from a proper studio album um i don't really count give my regards to Brosley as a proper studio album but we'll talk about that on the proper episode but we'll talk about that on the proper episode but this is actually going to be the final song we ever get to hear from paul mccartney and george martin and it's very appropriate really because mine's production on this song is just ridiculously strong like it's him doing the full abbey road ram kind of works you know everything is balanced so well and the mix is so pure everything sounds so crisp and it's gonna exist as a sad reminder as to what could have been in terms of the existing mccartney martin collaboration partnership overall 
Through Our Love is possibly one of the most underrated closers to a, a Paul McCartney album ever. And it stands as an example of why Pipes of Peace should be taken seriously. And with the end of side two now, we come to the end of Pipes of Peace. Thank you very much, folks. This is the end of our part two of our review of Pipes of Peace. We've just gone through every song, track by track, song by song. And the only question that I have for you now is, well, did I convince you? Are you going to walk away now from these two podcast episodes with a newfound appreciation for Pipes of Peace? Have you listened to the album since, you know, have you listened to it in preparation for these two episodes? If not, I hope you now go out there and give it another stab. Because all it needs is for you, the listener, to approach it with the right mindset. I remember back when Egypt Station first came out and me and my, and my, and my, and my friend Tom Quee, we were reviewing the first singles that came out for that album. And we weren't viewing it the right way. and We, we weren't in the right headspace. And so we didn't get it. We thought it was rubbish. But then once we kind of readjusted our expectations and when Egypt Station finally came out, we both actually really enjoyed the album. And that is exactly what Pipes of Peace is just 40 years prior. You cannot go into Pipes of Peace expecting Tug of War Part 2 in the same way that you cannot go into Venus and Mars expecting Band on the Run Part 2 and in the same way that you cannot go into Wildlife expecting Ram Part 2. That's just not going to happen. One thing I hope I have highlighted in this episode for you is that Pops of Peace is not as stock and boring as and as middle of the road as some people would have you believe. There is a massive variety of songs on this album, and whilst they might all lean towards the lovey-dovey side, in terms of what McCartney does in the studio, it, you know... Each song has a different flavour, each song has a different sound to it, or a different instrument, or a different style, or a different musician, you know. There are no two songs that sound exactly the same, there are many songs on this album that very purposefully are stark and do stand out from the rest. The sound is not this consistent mush of peace and love that everyone seems to write about there is an edge to it not the edge and funk that George Martin would have you believe that he was trying to aim for but if I've done anything with this two-parter is hopefully instilled the idea that Pops of Peace is not without surprises so yeah I think it's safe to say that I pretty much love Pipes of Peace. Uh, I'm really glad we got to do this episode. I've been looking forward to doing this one for a while now. So many of my favourite songs are on this album. I suppose I should answer for definite whether I personally rate this album above Tug of War in terms of my grand scale of Paul McCartney albums. And whilst I can certainly say that Pipes of Peace is certainly uh, an album that has more of my favourite Paul McCartney songs on it and I feel like as an album this is one that I'm more likely to put on just because I like the vibe and especially just chilling with this album on it in the background. I can, well I'd like to think that I can somewhat see the woods for the trees and I can admit that Tug of War is the superior album in terms of the general, you know, in terms of the general market. I can see why more people would like Tug of War and why that album has that mass appeal and cultural significance and Pops Pipes of Peace certainly has less of that. But this podcast has been about me exploring Paul McCartney's discography in order 
And when this show first started, McCartney too was as far into his career that I really first knew. So we are now, folks, truly stepping into unknown waters and discovering pubs of peace was a real joy for me. I'm so glad that I got to find this album through doing this podcast. And now before we close the episode, it is time for us to engage in Cannon Fodder. This is the part of the show where we dictate which songs from this album are going to be cemented forever in the Paul McCartney canon. And once this podcast has finished its full run of album reviews, we should have the full definitive playlist of all of McCartney's career. The greatest songs from all of his albums that would basically be the go-to collection for anyone who wants to get into Paul and anyone who already loves him. I always pick three just because it's a a nice round number and when I've got a guest it's nice for us to fight over the the last third position. But picking three songs off Pipes of Peace off the top of my head that I love and want to, you know, seal in a frozen arctic chamber for all future generations. I'd have to go with Through Our Love because I could not imagine going through the British public transport system ever again without that song to cheer me up and brighten my day. Say, 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 because it's just the most radio-friendly Paul McCartney song from this period, and I cannot believe it didn't actually get to number one here in the UK. That is one of our travesties, I must admit. And, ooh, what is the third choice? What am I going to go for? Oh, it, it has to be the title track, doesn't it? It has to be the title track. I know it's a little bit corny to pick a title track as as part of the definitive collection, But it just works so well and it's so catchy and you cannot help but fall in love with it. I defy anyone to resist Pipes of Peace. So yeah, folks, that was Pipes of Peace Part 2. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Sam Wiles. Stick around. I'm not sure what the next episode is, actually. Um, I've always planned that straight after uh, Tug of War and Pipes of Peace. uh, I would do a bonus episode are for War and Peace, where it would be a single album of those two projects, you know, uh, whittled down very much like that White Album, um, down to a single album project that a lot of people do out there. Um, But I've actually got a lot of material on the back burner now that I've actually got backlogged uh, after my holiday. Got a lot of stuff. Uh, We've got Bruce McMouse, the review coming out soon. I've got my copy of Hey Grand Dude in the post on the way. We've got our review of Lisa the Vegetarian, Paul's cameo on The Simpsons as well as all of our Press to Play Part 2 episode already having been recorded with our good friend of the show, Ken Michaels. So, got to get Part 1 actually written, produced, and uploaded as quick as possible so we can get that out for you. It was a fantastic interview. Can't wait to share that one with you folks. But yeah, we've actually been releasing these episodes with a bit more uh, regularity uh, now, so I hope you've all been enjoying that. There'll be... Whatever it is, there'll be a new episode out for you this time next week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out anyway. Keep listening to Paul. Peace and love. Peace and love. Take care, everyone. Play us out, Denny. Denny.